Welcome to the Public Cultural Studies Podcast. This is episode 7, Indigeneity on the Move. Obviously, took the month of March off for spring break, but the show is back, and I'm hoping to have at least a couple more episodes before we break for the summer and subsequently uh, get into the second season of the show. Uh, but before all that, today I'm delighted to bring you my conversation with my friend Dr. Yuridia Ramirez, which centers around the research that she's doing for her current book project, tentatively titled Indigeneity on the Move, Transborder Politics from Michoacan to North Carolina. Dr. Ramirez is a Ford Foundation Fellow and Assistant Professor of History at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She earned her PhD in History from Duke University with a certificate in Latin American Studies and also holds a BA in History and Journalism from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities as well as an MA in history from Duke University. As usual, I asked her to begin by telling us how she got interested in her current research. I came to my project really as an organizer. That's how this all started. When I started graduate school at Duke University, I also started organizing with a local political organization whose foundations were based on on the Zapatista ideology. And I started organizing the working class Black and Latinx populations that lived in, in that neighborhood in Old North Durham. And it was in that sort of space that I actually encountered the first indigenous migrant from this community that I study from Chiran Michoacan. This was 2011. And I remember distinctly that I was sitting in, in like our computer area and a woman was watching YouTube videos of what seemed to me like images of like struggle of war, like, violence and stuff and I was just trying to make small talk with people because it was my shift you know my volunteer shift and I wanted to get to know people in the community I mean I was also new in Durham and I asked her you know like what are you watching and she's like oh this is my hometown in Mexico I'm like oh gosh like what's happening and she said oh that you know my hometown is in an uprising Uh, it's an indigenous community that's in an uprising against like the narco state and I was like, what? <laughs> like, I, I was just thrown I was by all of those things, right? An indigenous community confronting like narco violence, you know, like how, in what world, you know, does this happen? Um, but that was like my introduction, right? And I, as I continued organizing and, and everything, I, I met different people from that community. Um, 
that then introduced me to more and more people. And it just started that way, right? But um, I think as an organizer, especially if I if I look at my work as an organizer, I recognize all of the valuable lessons that I learned along the way. And that I think probably the reason why I chose my topic <laughs> is precisely because of that desire to want to grow more as an organizer, to be more in community, to be a, a responsible and uh, a responsible scholar in the sense that I feel very responsible to the communities that I that I work with or whose stories I tell. So in in that way, I think it does make a lot of sense that I would have a, would have chosen this topic right from my own um, because of my own personal interests and investments in that. I almost skipped that question. Cause I'm, cause it, it's like a, Oh, tell people about yourself, but that's like such an amazing window into like your project. And yeah, that's just a really great, I'm really glad I asked you that question. Yay! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So, um, can you, can you flesh it out a little bit more in terms of, um, uh, how that research has evolved into your current book project and yeah, um, there's a bunch of questions I have about it, but maybe off the top, like what you're trying to do with it as a as a whole, like as a contribution. So my my initial sort of questions in general when I arrived to North Carolina, especially being this you know second generation, you know Mexican kid, the daughter of Mexican immigrants from Wisconsin was how there were so many ISAs, so many Mexicans living in North Carolina. Poor K was the question that I had, right? Like how? And I think that that question sort of evolves into me thinking about issues of, of racism and in the, in the Latino community broadly, but very specifically also the Mexican community. And knowing that since I was a child, that there were certain affinities for whiteness or, or being closer to whiteness, right? And that having even just dark skin was already something not, was already something unwanted, right? Or, or to be, you know, a, a aspiring to be white, whitened more, lightened more, whatever. And so I think I had a, a lot of these questions and when that woman told me that this was an indigenous community, I think that also to me revealed a lot of the own um, misconceptions that that even I had, right? That this idea that that Mexico as a modern nation is a mestizo one and that indigenous peoples exist as the Mexican state would have us believe, right? That they exist in our romanticized history in sort of our ancestry and, and our roots, but not in the present moment. And I wanted to know more about what it meant to be indigenous. While I was living in North Carolina, I met a lot of people that identified as being indigenous Mexicans from different parts, many who spoke their indigenous languages still I met for the first time in the United States Afro-Mexicanos, 
And I just realized that the lessons that I had learned as, as a student of Mexican history in grad school had really failed me in a lot of ways because there was something to be said about racism in Mexico. Scholars increasingly started writing and, and addressing that when I was also in graduate school, which was very affirming and that I knew I was right, right? And we were all right about that. They had called it classism as a lot of places in Latin America do, right? Racial democracy ideas, right? Of Brazil and things like that. Um, but I knew then, right, that these questions that, that the idea of Latinos being in North Carolina, why? And also just like the different types of Latinos that there were, and specifically very much the different types of Mexicans that there were. And so I kind of wanted, the dissertation really was a, a sort of comparative analysis of Mexicans that come from places in Mexico, from states that don't have these long histories of indigenous communities continuing to reside there, right? And I picked one of the uh, highest sending communities, right? Highest sending states, which was Guanajuato. And then I wanted to compare that to its neighbor, like literally the neighboring state of Michoacán, which has a very long, again, one of the top three sending states of immigrants to, to the United States, but also has a very rich and thriving indigenous history still. And so I wanted to hear a little bit about the experiences of a lot of white passing Mexicans um, and those that were not. And, you know, with that have two states that have very similar histories of immigration, similar histories of economic crises, uh, similar even histories of a sort of economic mobility and the way people were even surviving and sustaining themselves, um, but very different sort of ethnic and cultural histories. And I wanted to, to approach that. The book really has become though, much more of a focus on the indigenous community that I, that I started working on in the dissertation, but really didn't get a sense of how powerful or how much I actually wanted to do that project instead of the other comparative one, right? In the dissertation, I really much want said that, that what I argued is that there are differences, regional differences and racial ones between communities, between Mexicans, right? That this, that, that this does exist and it's real. And I think in, in the book, by looking at this one indigenous community, I'm actually able to say, this is why we cannot think of Mexican migration as a homogenous thing. Like we can't think of the Mexican immigrant as a homogenous person um, that that might look like me, right? As it were, phenotype, phenotype and everything like that, but but whose like cultural history, whose indigenous epistemologies allow them to identify very differently. I, I allow them to identify not even as Mexican, but as their indigenous community, right? First, before they ever identify with the nation. Um, and so these questions really evolve, right? To, to just say, 
I don't need to do a comparison. There's plenty of work already and all these other communities, right? The, where, where we're seeing a lot of new work and really exciting work coming is precisely on like indigenous and, and Afro-Mexicans and in the United States and how differently they are experiencing diaspora and migration because precisely their ethnic and racial backgrounds. Yeah. What's the, um, I was struck by something you said just there about the dangers of thinking about migrants in a homogenized way. And, you know, this is something that like the mainstream press is just sort of pathologically incapable of nuance in that kind of a way. <laughs> right, but right. I'm curious to hear you say more about what you think some of the dangers are. Like for folks who haven't spent a ton of time thinking about this, what are some of the dangers? What do we lose if we are understanding migration as basically like one homogenous phenomenon from global south to global north? What's lost in that narrative? One of the major things that we lose, I think, is just the context of why people are emigrating, right? The reality is, and the way that I show it in my work, is that a lot of indigenous communities in places like Mexico, in places like Mexico, I think Guatemala and South America or Central America are different, but in places like Mexico, we're, we're very much isolated still. Um, well into the 21st century, well into the 20th century. Um, and they really weren't, they be, because a lot of these communities, especially those in the interior, like around Mexico City, were protected in terms of, because of their insularity, that they were in some ways less vulnerable to all the other shifts that were happening in the Mexican state broadly, right? Like they, because of their insularity, they were able to maintain themselves internally with their own work, right? It was a very much collective, communal, collective care, community care. And, but that by the, the 1980s, right? When the economic crisis hit Mexico uh, and, and, the prices for crops, beans, and corn, and everything, and um, went down. That the bissel went down. Then people really started moving, and then this was only exacerbated, certainly with NAFTA in 1994. So we really lose the context, right? When we think of places like, and even in Michoacan, non-indigenous communities that have been immigrating, like I said, since the early 20th century, right, have some of the longest histories of immigration. That indigenous communities are different, right? That And they have always been different. Um, and certainly some of them, you know, we see instances of indigenous migrants already in like the Bracero program in the mid 20th century. Um, but these were also a lot of people that that came to the United States to work and went back as opposed to those who came to settle or who came back and settled, right? And so I think even the context of why people are moving and when they're moving becomes lost, right? And I think that's one of the issues of the homogenized Mexican immigrant. I think another problem 
one of the things we lose when we homogenize Mexican immigrants also is the, the responsibility in terms of the receiving communities of how to, to care or to attend to the needs of these new immigrant communities. Even in a place like Champaign-Urbana, that's a smaller, you know, it's not a, it's not a large city. I don't know that I would even call it a city, but it might be called a city. But it, a place like this that is that is currently receiving a lot of, um, of of Guatemalan indigenous children that don't speak Spanish, right? But that people assume they speak Spanish because they're from Guatemala. That itself is an issue, right? Because they're trying to serve the needs of these students in schools. And they're realizing that they don't know anything <laughs> about the new, these nuances, right? That, that not all Latinos speak Spanish, even if they're, that not all Latin Americans right, that are coming from Latin America, Spanish speaking America, actually speak Spanish. That a lot of these communities only speak their native language. And uh, that requires then a, a whole other way of, engaging with these communities, not only in language, but, but also culturally, right? Recognizing that these communities, precisely because they've been so insular or so uh, protective of each other, that there might be just a natural distrust or, or, or not sort of that, that ease of, of wanting to do things the way that we might in the U.S., right? Or the way that that other people might um, provide a recipe for doing things, right? That they do things in different ways. And I think sort of just that cultural competency that in a lot of ways is just like our laziness, right? I think being able to homogenize migrants makes it say, look, there's, it's like a one-way, it's a one-way stroke, one-way road to deal with, to, minister to to serve the needs of these immigrant communities and and the reality is that it's not yeah and it's easier to then if you can reduce it to like one story then you can use it you can use that story however you want like it, especially if you're in the press or in politics you can just say like well this is what that's about and you know that's why we should be all outraged or whatever it is I mean, I think it takes all of the, it allows us to be really lazy folks, right? Really lazy researchers, really lazy community members, um, irresponsible Americans, right? When we don't actually recognize that just like, just in the same ways that there are other immigrant groups that came in the early 20th century with a multitude of differences, right? That that wouldn't necessarily be the case of Latin America, right? Is ridiculous, right? That we would assume that. But I, I think that even still a lot of, I mean, I think even a lot of Mexicans and a lot of other Guatemalans, right? Spanish speaking immigrants arrive here never expecting to hear indigenous languages being spoken, right? Because they, like me, right? We're, we're like, how can people still speak those languages, right? And, and especially in our countries, you know, to, to be an, an Indian, an Indio is like a derogatory term. Like people will say, oh my gosh, you're so Indio, right? Like you're so backward or whatever. 
and that those same stereotypes, that same marginalization, these, these communities carry with them. Again, another reason why they're so insular because they know leaving their communities, they face all these things. But then imagine, right, when you come to a landscape like the US where immigrants from Spanish-speaking America are coming into contact with each other and they might look at each other and might say, hey, that's another Latino here. Like I might, I'm, I'm seeing them and I'm reading them as Latino. And then you hear them speak a whole other language and, and maybe don't even know what you're saying if you're speaking to them in Spanish, right? But you know they're from Guatemala or you know they're from Mexico and you're just like, wow, this is stuff I only read about in books or this is stuff that I thought, you know, these are people that I thought didn't exist anymore. Like I, as crazy as that sounds, right? People are really coming here and learning so much more about their communities of origin than they never ever knew until they left. Yeah, that's wild. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of the sort of insularity of, uh, the sort of necessary insularity of indigenous communities, um, what happened to the story about um, the resistance to narco-traffickers? Like, how did that play out? Um, is it ongoing? Uh, and, and what does it look like? Like, what does resistance look like? Could you describe it a little bit? Yeah, that, you know, the story of that uprising um, was the story that was sort of the entryway to the project. And the reason why I wanted to sort of understand, okay, how did this community by 2011, and of course I'm a historian, right? I'm an historian, so I'm like, how did this community by 2011 be able to mount this type of resistance, right? And I was sort of, that's what I wanted to trace. Like, how did we get to this point precisely when I knew that at the time of the uprising, more than half of this community lived in the United States. And so I wanted to understand how a movement happens even when faced with the transnational right? Um, and how an indigenous community resists differently in the transnational. And what I learned really, and again, sort of all of this is sort of really based on my work with, with examining Chiran as, as a community in Michoacan. And so speaking very broadly of that, that experience, but through that lens, right? Um, but anyway, just sort of thinking about how this community since the early 20th century have been resisting in various ways. Some of those were in armed struggle, right? And not necessarily like, like real arms, like guns or anything, but things that, that were more common to them like machetes or whatever in sort of land tenure disputes, um, but also uh, challenging land titles that, that were stolen from them, that were taken from them, challenging the entrance of um, Canadian and US uh, mining and logging operations that wanted to come into their area of Mexico, always knowing that there's that theirs is an indigenous community, right? Like that has always been the identity of Chiran, even on legal documents, right? That they always identified as an indigenous community. And I think having that as sort of the legal and official identification of a community 
really bolstered them in a lot of ways and, and then bolstered their the generations afterward, right? Like if we see these struggles in the early 20th century, um, these continued really throughout um, in, into the late 20th century with again, armed resistance, organized collective struggle, drawing on their own indigenous epistemologies of what sort of the communal and collective meant. Um, and eventually right in, in these later years of, uh, toward that uprising of 2011, which didn't really just happen overnight. It was, you know, like I said, it was like based on years of knowing and practicing different types of resistance. But really, you know, they by that time they had kicked out politicians. They recognized they wanted to be people that that weren't governed anymore by by outsiders or external forces. Things that didn't things that weren't natural to them, right? That they're that they knew they knew that their indigenous governing structures had worked for hundreds of years, right? That they had been a successful surviving and thriving community and that they wanted to return to that. And so I think all of these things, you know, sort of coalesced to allow them in, in you know, the early 2000s to really start to think about ways that they could actually take a stand. And what, what is fascinating also about that story, right, about the, the 2011 uprising, which lasted, you know, I, in some ways I want, I don't want to say it, you know, it just happened in 2011, but that's when a lot of the, you know, that's when like the international press got involved. That's when the women who were all like grandmothers in their 50s and 60s were the ones that led that, that uprising and actually encouraged other people to get involved. That, that this happened, it was sort of like this really powerful moment, but one that was based on decades of, of retelling these stories and practicing them, these, these modes of resistance, right? And that of course terrified, right? These people were scared and terrified, but they were more scared and terrified of what could happen to their community if they didn't if they didn't take things into their own hands. I think that's one of the greatest lessons that indigenous communities had and built from was that they knew that the government, the whatever government, whether that be the federal or their state or their municipal government, government was never going to serve them the way that they needed them to. And I think that that realization, that, that realization for a lot of indigenous communities and Afro-Mexican communities, and, and trust me, a lot of vulnerable communities in Mexico, the recognition that their government has failed them, will continue to fail them and won't ever provide for them the way that they need, of course, is one of the reasons why people leave, right? But I think in this, in this instance, this community was like, we're more fearful of what will happen if we don't do anything than of what could happen if we do. Wow, yeah. Thank you for explaining that. And um, I think if I remember right from the last time that I heard you talk about this, um, it, it's been relatively successful, yeah? Like um, returning to sort of community governance, returning to, um, or, or successful in terms of like keeping the outside influence 
you know, to a to a minimum to a certain extent. I wanted to ask you one quick thing about sort of the overall um, intervention that your book is is staging, perhaps, and maybe this is just one of them. But I was reading about this idea that, you know, indigeneity is often centered as a sort of location specific type of identity or like a place specific, um, something that happens in relation to place. And that's so important for so many understandings of indigeneity. But you're also trying to, I don't know how you would describe it, push against that, nuance that, expand that to also talk about indigeneity as something that can move. So could you talk a little bit about um, your perspective on that? And like how an understanding of what it means to be indigenous might expand if you start paying attention to questions of migration the way that you do in your work. Yeah, I mean, just to talk a little bit about the success of the community. I mean, the community is still a, a communally run indigenous municipality right at this point. So that happened in 2011 and 2012 or in November of 2011, they were able to vote to be able to use their their uses and customs in terms of their governance, which is uh, which was a an amendment to the 1992 Mexican Constitution, allowing indigenous communities to go to go and and use their own usos y costumbres, as they call it, you know, sort of the, those indigenous epistemologies to sort of govern themselves, and so Cheran has been successful in maintaining that right certainly there are there are always small groups of of people that are against it but more and more what what we've seen in chiran is that people continue to be very supportive very happy with their way of government more so even very proud of all the things that they've been able to accomplish um and to keep people out of their community right and um and so i think yeah that this is a story that to me is important because it shows us what a collective community of care would look like and that it, it is possible. Certainly this is on a much smaller scale. If we wanna think about the world or our own, or our own governments, our own nations, right? But, but it does show us and it shows me as the dreamer organizer, right? That you can organize a community in this way and that, that this type of collective form of care, form of community governance can be successful, is successful when people are invested in it and committed to it. And in terms of the intervention, I really, aside from showing the or aside from challenging this idea of the homogenous Mexican migrant and sort of deconstructing that narrative of homogeneity and among Mexican immigrants in general, is also to show precisely that these indigenous immigrants are moving among and then between, sometimes if intersecting systems of oppression and how they're doing so in ways uh, that that allow them to resist resist those systems of oppression and thrive even amid them. 
there is certainly is a lot of scholarship, I think, in the in sort of the indigenous historiography, indigeneity and historiography, right? In terms of thinking about place and and indigenous peoples within them. And and of course, then we have works like Phil Deloria's that, you know, talk about Indians in unexpected places, as it were, um, and sort of talking about the ways that indigenous peoples have moved and often, you know, sometimes by force, other times willingly or for, you know, willingly, I say that willingly, but sometimes also by necessity, right? <laughs> A willing necessity, I guess. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I really am, am trying to think about is approaching even this story as one of Native peoples moving has been a part of this hemisphere's history since before we ever even got here, right? Um, since before it became the United States, that indigenous peoples have obviously for thousands of years, right, have, have moved for a variety of reasons. And if we think, if we're thinking a bit more, a little bit about the, if we think a bit more about sort of hemispheric indigeneity or sort of hemispheric collective indigeneity in, in the sense of, you know, we're, we're really thinking of like no dapple movements that's, that saw people coming together from different parts, you know, from Peru, from indigenous communities in Mexico, right? Supporting no dapple, um, supporting uh, their indigenous brothers and sisters on the ground here. That's sort of what I'm I'm hoping that this work also shows is that, you know, if we think about, you know, indigeneity not sort of landlocked or place locked or even nation locked, a lot of these boundaries that were imposed upon these peoples, right? But maybe we can think about a hemispheric indigeneity that also allows us to be hopeful for the future, right? That allows us to to think of native peoples as not um, that allows us to think of native peoples. How do I want to say this? I think a hemispheric dialogue about indigenous struggle in general is necessary, right? Because I think we start to see that these that what exists in the US and Mexico are these intersecting systems of oppression, right? That that certainly have different sort of historical contexts emerged in different points, but racism, colonialism, all of these big isms, right, have had lasting legacies on these communities. And so movement is one of them, the ways in which these peoples have protected themselves for millennia. And I think if we approach it in, in a hemispheric way, ignoring these national borders, right? We can start to think of this community as, as moving it, that mobility itself, that moving itself is a site of resistance. And that when they are moving, that they continue to, to strive to recreate as much of their ancestral customs and traditions even in these new sites, right? They recreate them. 
they're not the exact same, certainly, as perhaps their grandmothers or their great grand, you know, that their ancestors did, their elders did in their in their home communities. But they're continuing to play them out in, in these new sites. And those, I think those, you know, sort of opportunities of resistance, I think, are are also something to take note of, right? That indigenous communities are continuing to celebrate their practices and rituals even in the US. Yeah, it's like indigeneity as as a series of practices in addition to an identity or or like thinking about an identity as tied to ways of living, ways of being in addition to having some sort of relationship to place, but it's not exclusively about place. Aida Castillo writes about indigeneity as a field of power. And I think that is one of the best ways to think about indigeneity, right? In terms of like, we, you know, in terms of like a, outside of just an ethnic or a, a racial identification that it sometimes is, right? That indigeneity as a field of power refers to all of the different ways, social, cultural, political processes through which indigenous like identities have been constructed. Yeah. And that that makes me think too about like what you were saying earlier about um, thinking hemispherically and thinking the way that these things intersect with one another as as a potential site of resistance, as a potential site of hope. You know, like what I think about is always um, like a couple of years ago, I was in a couple marches here and the slogans were like, the slogans that people were chanting would move from like, hands up, don't shoot, to no water, no life. You know mm. what I mean? To, right. and, and it would be the abortion access chance and the yeah. gun violence chance. And it was all just, it was like a, almost felt random, but of course is not random because these things are all connected to the violence of the state in some, you know, in some capacity and and yeah and it was hopeful for me because it illustrated like a an acknowledgement or an understanding of how we were connected by these struggles Eso. if we come from different places yeah Eso. i think that that this this idea of this hemispheric indigeneity then allows these indigenous peoples to rec- to sort of build solidarity you know join in collective action with other oppressed peoples of the world, right? That that this becomes a site of where they can where could they can join these struggles. Yeah. And it's I think that the site of hope is the greatest promise that the future holds for us. That's such a nice place to wrap up the conversation. <laughs> um do you do you want to talk about anything else? I feel like this was really wonderful. And if you want to plug anything of yours or of someone else's that um, you've been like found informative or helpful or like anything at all, honestly, I don't have any more questions. Yeah. Well, I mean, we do have, um, you know, I, I have these amazing collaborators, but also just like friends and colleagues working on this Nuestro Self podcast, Our Self, but in Spanish, right? And check out that website, nuestroself.org. It is very cool and looks at all the different sites, especially in the South where, where 
Latino communities are existing and thriving. Very sort of um, exciting stories about different types of Latinos too, not just indigenous communities, certainly like in North Carolina, but thinking about uh, Afro-Latinos and, um, and Latinos building in solidarity with other um, minoritized communities right in the South and just how the South is transforming in general, um, which I think is, is really cool. Uh, so that Nuestro South podcast and website is really dope. One day my book will come out, hopefully. So check that out. <laughs> yes, um, for sure. Yeah. And I, I, I have a chapter coming out in a new edited volume um, called Faith and Power through NYU Press. Latino religious politics since 1945. Oh my God, there it is. A <clears throat> so there's a, there's a chapter in that where I talk about how the community from Chiran was building with their Mexican counterparts, right? Their non-Indigenous Mexican counterparts what they, once they arrived in, in Durham um, to sort of carve out a space for themselves in a home away from home, which was the Catholic church, but how that played out a little bit differently because this was a black, a historically black Catholic church. So check that out as well. Cool. Well, I will make sure that all of that is linked when we drop the episode. Yeah. Oh man, this was so oh. cool. Thank you for talking to me. No, thank you. It was so fun. again to Dr. Ramirez so much for this conversation and thanks to you for listening. In the coming months I'm going to be soliciting some feedback from those of you who have been listening but in the meantime of course if you like the show please take a second to rate and review it and tell your friends. Thanks see you next time. Mm-hmm.